You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 95 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And today we're coming to you from the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, and the Emma S. Clark Memorial Library in Setauka, New York. Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash library pros. Consider leaving a review or telling someone about us because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow. So today joining us is Mike Rossetti from mylibro.com, conversational IA for libraries. Mike's going to talk to us about that missing middle, that elusive demo of the new adults, or also called the 20-somethings and 30-somethings, and how we can attract that demographic back to the library and its services. But first, let's get to know our guest. So we're excited to have you on, not only to talk about my Libro, but to also talk about that missing middle. Tell us about my Libro and how it got started. Sure. Thanks, Chris and Bob. Appreciate you having me on tonight. Uh, so, to tell you a little bit about my Libro. We're based in Indianapolis, and uh, the company has been in the library space for a little over four years now. We launched in 2018. Uh, kind of an interesting story how it started. We're part of a larger company that uh, does conversational AI for supply chain and and in the uh, more in the data analytics space. Our founder, who came over from a company called Cognizant, his eight-year-old son at the time in Columbus, Indiana, was a big reader and user of the library. And he said, Dad, it would be really cool if I could just ask Alexa to search for a book or to be able to check on when my renewals are coming up and my due dates. And Dad said that that's a great idea. We would lo- Let's take a look at that. And they partnered with Bartholomew County Public Library in Columbus, Indiana, and came up with this voice skill that primarily at first worked on a mobile device, simply through a conversation, but also on an Alexa device, and, and really brought that voice element to library search, account management, and other features. From there, um, we quickly got some interest from a couple of universities that were doing similar studies. Iowa State University joined us as well as the University of Iowa, and they really helped us with the, the voice development of the skill and building out the platform in that way. It's kind of a slow start at first because there's a lot of limitations to voice, uh, but then the pandemic came and that just opened up a world of opportunities for growth. And since we've uh, we've evolved the platform quite a bit to now a full visual component of the platform and uh, much more of a virtual branch for libraries where they can showcase a variety of different resources very simply and easily in a mobile environment. As much as the pandemic shut things down, it also allowed other things to grow and develop. And it sounds like my Libro was one of those things. For sure. And I think it opened us up to having a lot of great conversations with librarians and kind of learning how they were finding their way through some unheard of times and, some, you know, definitely unprecedented times. Uh, so it was just a great opportunity to have to find ways to help, uh, help, help the libraries, help the patrons. And, and that was a big part of our growth plan. Mike, I can't wait to find out more about the missing middle because this is a group that, that Chris and I have been talking about for so long. Um, so when it comes to your background, what attracted you to the line of work and, and how has working with libraries enhanced kind of what you do? Yeah, I've kind of had a roundabout uh, trip to this point in my life. I started out at a college as an English teacher, uh, English and journalism teacher for high school students. And uh, 
did that for about five or six years, loved it, and then ended up uh, kind of fell into a newspaper sales role where I was selling advertising and working with advertising companies in three different uh, um, newspapers around the country. So it was a it was something where I was always kind of attached to English, attached to journalism, attached to reading and, and literature and things like that. So from there, we uh, I had an opportunity to move back to Naples, Florida, where I live now, and I started working for a company called Newsbank. Uh, that I'm sure you're familiar with in the, in the library space. And it was really my first time in library tech and learning a little bit about how much that impacts patrons, how much that impacts communities. Uh, coming from the newspaper world, I know the importance of journalism and newspapers in their communities. Libraries have a very similar role in their communities, obviously in a different way, but they, they serve such an important role. So that really attracted me from the beginning. I think being able to work with people who cared so much about their communities, were always trying to find solutions to problems was really attractive to me. So in terms of what you do, and even in your personal life, what tech is making you smile right now? Uh, professionally, I'd say the things I like are the things that make my job a little bit easier. Obviously, I love... Uh, a good CRM that, that kind of tells me what to do throughout the day. Uh, our conversational AI that our parent company does with Conversite is really interesting from a data analytics side. I think the fact that you can simply ask a question and get information from your data, get an answer that actually helps you to make decisions and you know, project that out to helping your customers is, is great. Personally, um, I'm really into cooking, barbecuing, I love to read, obviously. So anything that brings me content that uh, simplifies the cooking process, the barbecuing process. So really love, uh, you know, streaming content and eBooks and audiobooks, as well as uh, just being able to, you know, find a little gadget that that tells me when when something's done on the grill. I don't have to stay up all night with it or something like that. Mike, I have to know what's a good CRM that you like. We use HubSpot. Uh, I, I, this is my third or fourth. What I like about HubSpot is it's really simple. It's easy. Um, I think for a, for a startup company like we have been, uh, it's really something that can grow with you. And then we've had a lot of success with it. That's cool. It's nice to hear. That's very cool. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. So we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to speak with Mike about that missing middle. That, that's something that Bob and I have talked about for a long time. Um, you know, library services that we can provide to attract them and how libraries can provide really services remotely, maybe even to reach that demo. So we'll be back in just a minute. And we're back with Mike Rossetti from MyLibro.com. Okay, so this topic is something that I've been fascinated in for some time, and Bob and I have obsessed about this. Libraries are great at doing great things for children, and that has evolved into a specific services for teens. It's something that really didn't exist 20 years ago, so now there's tons of teen services that are out there. And then when the teens age out, they seem to evaporate until they're old enough to have kids and then cycle back into the library with that cycle of, you know, going to children's and teens 
and it happens again. So after those teens are grown, those parents continue to use the library, and then they become that that fifty the forty year olds and the fifty year olds who return to the library to take out materials or you know use the facilities that are in the library. So what, in your opinion, is the best way to retain that elusive demographic of the twenty somethings and thirty somethings? Rather than uh, share my opinion, I think what I'll share is some of the things that we've heard from some of our customers. Like I said, with with the growth that we've seen over the past couple of years, we've had the opportunity to have hundreds of really good conversations. And early on in the pandemic, it was all about, you know, different ways that libraries could serve in terms of like when they had to close the doors, how could they handle curbside? And then when they were able to open in a limited capacity, how could they manage the number of people in the library and really make sure that they were serving the most important needs in the best way possible? So through those conversations, we obviously started to move out of that and move into, okay, what does your world look like post-pandemic? Let's start to look to a more positive time. And we kept hearing this missing middle thing. We kept hearing, you know, we we've had some time obviously with the doors being closed to maybe reevaluate and say, here's who we're serving really well and here's who we're missing. And what they were finding was that a lot of the, a lot of the patrons that grew up as patrons as kids uh, did come back. Many of them stayed with the library through their twenties and thirties. And then of course, when they had kids, they were there because that's how they were raised, but more so they were trying to reach that those groups that, uh, maybe we're not brought up in the library, you know, didn't have the opportunity to reach a, to read a lot of books. So we heard some really interesting solutions. I mean, everything from, you know, as they reopened, we have a we have a group of libraries out in eastern Washington, libraries of Stevens County that uh, actually came up with a plan to, to go out and have remote librarians uh, with the Chamber of Commerce to have host nights where their librarians were bouncers at a beer garden and they were welcoming people in with beer. And I think they called it uh, books and booze or something like that. So just a lot of really creative ways that we've heard librarians trying to reach out to bring these people back in to showcase, honestly, showcase all those different things that so many people in their communities don't even realize libraries offer. You know, I can go learn a language. I can, you know, check out a, a, a laptop or an, iP- an iPad. I can get a hotspot, all these different things that can help me look for a job, do a resume, get a passport photo. Uh, I think libraries have become really creative in trying to reach that missing middle. And it just becomes more of a marketing effort now. You know, how do we better, how do we help them get that word out there and reach those people that probably aren't paying attention, but really need to. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up too, because I think it's, and we've talked about this so many times on the podcast, that libraries are great at reaching the people who come in the building. And, you know, we put out a newsletter that is a bulk mailing. So I don't want to say what happens to a lot of those newsletters that we put our heart and soul into writing. Um, But let's just say not everybody reads it. And, you know, we're really good at on social media, but you have to follow us on social media in order to get that that message out there and you know we put things in the local the local papers and stuff like that but you know i think that that one part that's elusive for libraries and bob you probably agree with me on this how do we reach the people that don't come in at one point our library system put out a a tv and radio uh campaign and i have no idea what the metrics were on that so and it was a very short-lived thing, and it wasn't. They weren't. Let me put it this way: I don't think they could afford to be put in prime time. So that's the thing. How do you reach those who don't hear us, don't see us, don't smell us, don't taste us? And how do you then make it appealing where they want to come in? That's the trick, I think. 
That's that's been a big part of our conversation. We've actually uh, we launched a social media element to our platform not too long ago, and our 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 app actually takes a social media approach to the app, entire app itself. It's I think it's the only app in the library space that's kind of presented in a newsfeed format. So as patrons are scrolling through, they're seeing what they're looking for, but they're also discovering and becoming more aware of things that maybe they weren't even looking for. And that social element, that social media element helps them to use their patrons as marketers for the library. So as the patrons are seeing those posts that maybe they're not seeing because they're not on Facebook all the time, they're sharing those out more. They're, they're liking those more. They're getting response and essentially they become marketers that are sharing with their friends, hopefully is bringing other patrons into the building through that as well. It's like guerrilla marketing, right? Exactly. I'm so happy to hear this is happening because I've run and just recently run into some, some pretty um, different folks that are in different demographics say, what do libraries have to offer 20 and 30 somethings? Like, why would someone go to a library? And of course I tell them, you know, what I think and what we have and what other libraries like Sachem and, and Connectquad and, and what other folks around us have and what they're doing. But think about all the people that aren't asking anybody that you know, they're only asking me because I work in a library and they said, you know, what, what do you even do in a library anymore? And when I tell them what we do, they're, they're surprised that, that any of that's happening. You know, why would, why would a young adult want to come into the library and go and collaborate somewhere with their friends, you know, with a nice space that's been created for them. And they just, they just don't understand. And, you know, there's so many more people, like you said, Mike, that are out there that are not asking that question and to be able to properly get to them through, through your social, social media and marketing ways. And Chris, like you said, like guerrilla marketing is almost, you know, by the time we get it to them, we've heard it a hundred times and we're kind of sick of it. And are we doing it too much? But I don't think we're doing it enough, or at least in, in enough ways to reach the folks that, that aren't coming to the library or don't see a reason to come to the library. And, and in terms of advertising, too, I mean, if this was 10 years ago, I'd say, well, maybe we get some radio spots because everybody's listening to WBLI or, you know, WALK. To, sorry to go local for everybody, but, you know, everybody's listening to local radio. I can't say that that's the case anymore. If they are, they're streaming it. So how much does it cost to do the digital streaming uh, if, you know, I, like I stream the, the news station instead of listening to it on AM and or I notice, Sirius, right? what's that? Or Sirius or XM or something like right. that. It's just right. But you can, you can tell, you can tell when the advertising switches because you start to hear the, the broadcast advertiser and then it cuts out and then it's the online advertiser. <laughs> so now do libraries now have to have an advertising budget where they're hitting, you know, streaming media or pandora or you know spotify for those who don't pay and then then there's this other compounded problem where we serve a particular library district and now you're advertising it and it's just being spread everywhere so now this would probably be a good problem to have where you have pa patrons from all over coming because they want to use the facilities and then you have to say well yeah it's only for 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 our uh, patrons so there's that double-edged sword where you want to get the word out to as many people as possible, but how do you constrict or limit something that you're trying to make an unlimited advertisement for? It's 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 an oxymoron. It's jumbo shrimp, you know? Yeah. And it's cutting into that budget even more. I think one thing, a couple of the things that we've heard is libraries trying some more organic approaches. Uh, we have a library in California that's done a shop local program, uh, not necessarily a, a unique idea. I think a lot of libraries have tried that, but they actually asked us if we could build into 
for the app, a way to expose that through GPS. So a patron would get a notification as they neared a particular business that offered discounts with your library card, uh, things like that. So I think continuing to build those community connections, find ways to make people think of the library when they think of McDonald's or something like that, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, a unique way of taking that approach. I think it's just uh, looking for multiple ways without having to dig deep into your budget to, to do that it has been uh, pretty eye opening for us in, in terms of our development and what our libraries are looking for going forward. Chris, what you mentioned is a great growth model. So if I have something that your patrons want and they're coming to my library to use it, they're more likely to go to you and ask you to get it so that we start to expand that. I mean, look what you did at Sachem, right? So you bought all this awesome technology and you're a, a creator space, basically. You can do anything there. And other libraries around you and in Suffolk County and Nassau County have followed suit and literally set up makerspaces because you guys did it right. And the success was in, uh, you know, the proof that it could work. And the library, has, uh, the, the island has taken notice. And uh, I think you guys are responsible for the for the, the makerspaces on, on probably in every Suffolk and Nassau County Library because you guys uh, took the bullet for everybody and did it right. So, well, I, I don't know about that. I can't take credit for that. But. No, well, you did. So, you know, I get five dollars for the uh, for free, <laughs> <laughs> for the free promotion, right? Well, in, in uh, just in thinking in terms of that, when one library does something that's cool, and what's really great about the libraries and libraries in Long Island is that we we really do collaborate and share what we do. We have monthly tech meetings and we have listservs and all this other stuff. And the best part is. When somebody's doing something, it's not to spite or to one-up another library. It's almost as though this works, and then you put the word out there, and you, you put the call out, and then other libraries say, oh, you've done this? How have you done this? And then they do it, but they do it with the spin for their particular community and their library and their way of doing whatever they're doing, whether it's budget constraints or whether it's you know a particular targeted audience within their particular uh, district, maybe they're they're trying to reach more of the Latino Latina uh, demographic, or maybe they're trying to reach girls so they can get them to use technology with coding, or you know maybe they're trying to reach underrepresented populations, or maybe they're just trying to get the seniors in for a movie night. You know, if you have a formula that works, what's great about here, and we're kind of blowing the trumpet for Long Island. Sorry, everybody else is listening everywhere else. Um, you know, it's great because we lift each other up, and. Marketing is something that we haven't really done a great job with helping each other with to a certain degree. And I think that's the one thing we really need to work on. But to get those 20 and 30 somethings in, sometimes it's the tech. And, and, and the formula that we use at, at our library is, okay, you start them young and they start learning coding with, you know, very basic stuff and they get more interested. So by the time they age out, hit sixth grade and hit teens, now they're at the next level. And now they're doing all these other cool things. And when they age out of teens, guess what? there's now a place for them in the makerspace in the adult section to do the things they were doing in the other makerspaces in the other departments. So that concept is also layered with the idea that the technology is available um, in what I, it's like a triangle. So you have, you have the tech in the building and then you hold programs that teach people the tech. So when they come in, they can use it. But then you also have that tech in your library of things that circulates out. So now it's reinforced by them bringing the tech home and working with the tech and then saying, you know what, I'm stumped. I'm going to go to the next class using that tech to see what I missed or see what the next level is. 
and then they use the tech in the building, and then they go through that triangle again where it circles around, and now they're taking the stuff out again. So not only are you drawing the 20-somethings in and the 30-somethings in, you're teaching them, and they're able to then take that tech and bring it home and then do it at home. And then maybe they're telling their friends and neighbors. And again, you talk about guerrilla marketing. There's nothing better than having an advocate in your patron. Completely agree. So Mike, tell us, in the wake of the pandemic, libraries really had to think differently about the service for their patrons and customers. We all learned very quickly how important library services are to the community, and we all had to pivot, I love the word, from the brick and mortar service model. So what have you seen regarding that pivot from the standpoint of my Libro? Coming from the startup world, pivot's one of our favorite words, for sure. Um, I think with the... uh, what we saw quickly, you know, like I said, with our app, it started out as a voice-only solution. We launched our visual component right before, right at the beginning of COVID, and immediately libraries needed curbside service. So that that was probably the first pivot. That was probably the first evolution going from that model where you're used to uh, seeing everybody every day, spending time with them, answering questions, laughing. Now you're just throwing a, a bunch of books in their trunk and send them on their way. So I think that was the first pivot. The second one was being able to say, okay, when we reopen, how's this going to look? How are things going to be different? Um, Probably more importantly, though, I think we've seen uh, libraries realizing the importance of all the money they're spending on digital resources. And maybe in a lot of places, those were being underutilized. So how can we better uh, expose those? How can we make them more obvious to patrons, more accessible? Accessibility is always an important word in the library space. So I think some of the pivots we've seen have been around accessibility, you know, finding different ways to uh, get the word of the library out, bring people into the building, or if they're not coming to the building, how can we still have them as an active patron, as a user? Um, so just a lot of good things that we've seen uh, from the standpoint of my Libro. It's just been a matter of continuing to help those libraries evolve, listen to what they need, and then continue to bring different solutions that are really aimed at assisting those patrons and those students. Makes a lot of sense. So taking the tech, such as what my Libro offers libraries, how can a profession, which has always kind of been building centric and make at-home resources available to attract those new users like the new adults? Libraries are doing an amazing job with this. Again, I'm going to use the word pivot, but what could we libraries be doing better or maybe they're missing the boat on a little bit? We, we wrestle with this a lot because I think it's something where I, I hesitate to say doing better because I think a lot of times it's just limitation of resources more than anything else. Uh, every library we talk to wants to be more accessible, wants to find ways to, to reach patrons and do those types of things. So what, we, what we've really looked at is, okay, how can we create uh, essentially a virtual branch, something that is an extension of the library that offers a lot of the same experience that a patron might have if they came in? And even more so than that, how can we free up pay the staff that are in the building to get away from some of the mundane tasks and actually be able to assist the patrons with research or reference or anything else that they need while they're in the building. So things like, you know, offering self-check through through a mobile app, being able to, um, you know, offer those digital resources, for example, pulling multiple digital resources into one mobile environment so that patrons can access those without having to jump around to four or five or six different apps or mobile environments, finding those conveniences while at the same time building those in-branch services like curbside service and taking appointments for all those things we mentioned earlier, like passport photos and meeting rooms and study rooms. I think it's, it's kind of forced libraries to really get 
uh, proactive and to where everything at the beginning of the pandemic was reactive. Now it's extremely proactive and libraries are looking ahead and saying, we're not gonna plan for the next pandemic, but we're gonna plan for the next thing like a pandemic where we have to suddenly make changes and adjustments. Well, that makes a lot of sense too, because you know, yes, pandemic, 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 but there are other things that happen too. Maybe you have a water main break in the library, or maybe you lose water service, or maybe electric goes out, or maybe there's, here we are on the East Coast, maybe there's a hurricane or, yeah. or some kind of weather event that prevents people from having electricity or having access to the internet. The pandemic, I think, was a huge wide eye-opener worldwide, whereas depending on where you are in the country, it's a tornado, it's a, it's a snowstorm, it's a, a hurricane or a typhoon or this kind of opened everyone's eyes to see what we could do and, and show that libraries can be there to help in these times of need. And libraries continue to evolve as these needs arise. So in terms of, of making that adaptation, I think libraries have been amazing at adapting for such a long time. You know, just introducing VHS and, and DVD and teaching classes. I mean, teaching, teaching classes alone, whether it's a tech class or whether you're learning to knit, crochet, or or learning about how to use an AED or, or have a CPR class. That's a, that was another big pivot for libraries. And now I think, I think the next pivot past technology is the pivot towards the human side. And what can we do to help each other emotionally with support and just with life skills and things like that. We see now with a lot of kids, they don't have some life skills like what a ratchet wrench is and things like that. Definitely. And, you know, we even even other situations, we've had a lot of libraries that I think are renovating now or going through a whole new building constructions and to where in the past, pre-pandemic, you might have said, well, we're, we're shut down. There's not much we can offer. You know, now I think there's this realization because we've already done that. There is a lot we can offer. There's a lot of ways that we can get how many how many libraries learned how to use Zoom, Zoom learned how to use Microsoft Teams, you know, different technology that they had never touched before. And now virtual programming can be a thing for anybody who's homebound or just, uh, you know, can't come to the library for whatever reason. And things like take and makes where, you know, the, the kits are available, you pick them up curbside and then you go home and you watch the YouTube video or with a recorded Zoom that's that's hosted somewhere on, on you know, on your Web page that's embedded in there or something. So, yeah, I think we've all learned a lot in the past two years, and it was necessity, honestly. I think the take and makes are going to stay because, you know what, not everybody has the time anymore to come in and do an hour program. They want to just take it and go home and do it and bring it back or, you know, or show it somewhere. Um, the take and makes are taking off, and I mean, they're not slowing down either. Even as we've introduced more in-person programming, the take and makes are still flying off the shelves because, again, especially now with graduations coming up and all these other things that the kids are into, um, they want to just take it home and do it on a Sunday or a Saturday afternoon. They don't want to do it you know, at a program for an hour. And they, can, and they can rewind if they miss something. Yeah. That's yeah. a biggie. That's the, one of the biggest pieces of feedback that we get from people who do the take and makes. So we'll do it in, we'll do a hybrid. So we'll do it in person, but we'll also make a video and post it on, on YouTube for those that want to take it home. And, the biggest thing they say is I can pause it because I may have missed something. I can rewind, go back and say, Oh, I put this in wrong. All right. You know, this screw is the wrong screw or whatever. And, yeah. you know, in terms of that, that makes it more human as well. And the other thing that's really interesting about take and makes, especially when you're talking about a YouTube client, it's interesting to see how many people watch the video, because mm -hmm. if you have a class of 15 and 13, bring it home. If you're getting 25 views, okay. They watch the video, but when you see it go to a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand, and now people are commenting 
on the types of wood and the things that they've done, you know, material. Now, I think, I mean, I hate to say that it goes viral because it's such a hack term nowadays. But in terms of reachability, this tells me we're doing this program again. Because look at the amount of hits that we got. And now, honestly, we can recycle that video again. But it shows that there was engagement beyond the parameters of our library. And in terms of that take-and-make environment, that's the kind of feedback that is more than just somebody filling out a questionnaire at the end of a program. That's like real-world interest in whatever you're doing. And if they, if you do a take-and-make and only five people watch it and 15 people registered, that tells you something, too. Good point. So, Mike, uh, e-books were a hard sell in the beginning because seniors did not have the expertise to operate the various early e-readers. I'm thinking Sony. If anybody knew what the Sony e-reader was like, uh, it, was, it was horrendous. Uh, but now that they've transitioned to a smaller number of apps uh, that can be used on mobile devices, how can libraries attract that missing middle to e-books, whether it's for college use or even pleasure reading or listening to audiobooks or a podcast? It's a great question. I think in terms of, uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge e-book reader. Uh, I, I hate to admit this as somebody that grew up with, with the physical books. It's still very hard for me to it's now very hard for me to pick up a physical book because I'm so used to that convenience of starting something on my tablet and then on my mobile, you know, on my phone while I'm sitting waiting at the doctor's office or sitting waiting to get my oil changed. I can pick up and just start reading. I didn't have to think to bring my book with me. It's just with me because my phone is. People probably don't realize all the different types of books that are out there either. And I think that's something that we're trying to help libraries get the word out. Uh, Self-help books, you know, as you're trying to grow in your career or, you know, get over depression or anything that you're trying to do, it's all there. You know, it's all there through some type of service, whether it's Overdrive or, you know, or Hoopla or any of those other services that are out there. So just being able to take advantage of what that library has to use and, and really from our perspective, just trying to help libraries market that so that it is a really cool experience for people. It's an easy experience for people. And they realize it's just one more great thing they can do with the library. It certainly doesn't take away from all those people that love to read you know, a physical book and or pick up a physical DVD, but just having that opportunity for everybody that's growing up with streaming, just getting used to that in their lives. The fact that the library offers that too is pretty cool. Uh, college is an interesting one though. I think trying to find ways to, to get more usage there is something a lot of us are going to be taking a hard look at in the coming years. And that actually folds really nicely into our next question, too, because so I'm thinking in terms of when we're all probably about the same age and you go to college and you needed a TV and you needed to get cable and you needed a phone line into your dorm room and you had a DVD player or a VHS player, in, in my case, at least. And that entertainment was going to the library or the local video store in the college town and getting a video and watching videos with your friends, watching movies. Now, you know, one thing that I want to kind of gauge your opinion based upon what my Libro does, again, this is something I'm sure there's 10,000 lawyers that are going to be involved in this. So let's take the lawyers out of it for a minute and talk about innovating to a point because you, you, like you mentioned Hoopla before earlier, they have videos on Hoopla. The, I don't want to say dying, but that, that medium of DVD all the streaming services that are available now, the Hulus, Netflix, Amazon Prime, all that stuff that are fee-based things, do you foresee a day, probably more sooner than later, when DVDs will no longer be circulated in libraries and what that replacement will look like? So at one point we were talking, we were spitballing at our library, building like a red box kind of apparatus just in, just in terms of saving space, because DVDs eat up a ton of square footage in the building. 
it, it's one of those things where if you run a, a list on what hasn't circled in the last three years, and you do that weed, and then all of a sudden there's a revival or something happens, like they they find something else on the Titanic, and everybody wants to t- watch what wants to watch that Titanic movie again, and you've discarded all the DVDs because it hasn't circled in, in eight years. That's like a really tricky one because some movies are timeless. And some movies were timeless that have now timed out. Casablanca and some of the old classics that obviously the 20 and 30 somethings may not be watching unless they took a, you know, a film class or something. So do you envision a time where libraries will discard their DVD collection and then there'll be another medium for them to watch them like a Netflix, like a Hulu, or maybe even that the library gets a contract with them? I know some libraries here on Long Island have done that with Netflix and Hulu and and some other services where they circulate an iPad and you're able to watch it on an iPad and you would take it out from the library of things. But do you foresee a time when there is like an overdrive Libby service for streaming content, entertainment, movies, things like that? I'd be shocked if somebody's not already working on that. Uh, I think it's <laughs> coming coming from a, a legacy industry like newspapers. I think, uh, you know, we, we swore for years and years that newspapers were, were never going away. And in a large extent, they haven't. They've just changed from there's still reporters in communities. There's still people bringing people news. So DVDs are the same way. I think, you know, how many of us, you know, we grew up with Blockbuster. You'd walk into that place and you were like a kid in a candy store running around grabbing DVDs when they, before that, you know, VCR tapes and all those types of things. So um, it's, I can't imagine that uh, you use the word timeless. And I think that word, uh, has become is becoming more and more dated with every generation because I think as attention spans change and and uh, I want it now mentality continues to take over. I'm not sure there's much more that's timeless anymore. So I, I I have to believe that at some point there will be some type of service for the streaming services. I would imagine it's more challenging than trying to get licensing with the publishers that that some services do now, but. I'm sure somebody's gonna gonna do their best to, to try to make that happen. It seems like a valuable service, and especially probably will be five or ten years from now. And I just think in terms of saving square footage in the building too, you know, it, yeah. it, it makes it, it it allows you to expand other services. Because I always think in terms of when you, when I watch the people who are coming with a list of DVDs and they're watching it, they tend to be older, they tend to be retired. And they tend to, and it's actually quite quite funny because they'll say, oh, I have a list because I watched these movies. And in the beginning, the previews were these movies. So it's almost as though the old technology and, and what they did for advertising in those DVDs is a cyclical thing for the people who watch DVDs. But for people who have streaming services, that's not necessarily the case anymore. It's just such, a, it's such an interesting thing. And it's something that I've been fascinated with for the last couple of years, you know. Especially I still like, like the idea of the red box, Chris. That's a great idea. Even <laughs> if it was just for archives, like things that haven't searched in three years, put them in a red box and have them searchable and indexed and drop it into the dispensing system. It would be pretty cool. Or even have an app where you type in, okay, you go up to the whatever box it is and you type in Casablanca and then the thing spins around and it tells you whether it's there and then press E5 and it pops out like a vending machine. Yeah, along with a bag of Doritos, right? Exactly, sure. <laughs> and some unpop popcorn so you can pop it at home. And then yeah, you can go to the library of things and take out the air popper. That's exactly, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it's just fascinating to me because there's a bunch of stuff on, on Hoopla that I've loved to watch. And most of it's PBS. 
And when you have streaming services, like, um, oh, there's one that I forget. It's, it's, I don't know if it's National Geographic or it's a, it's a documentary uh, streaming service and it's $20 a year. So it's like a dollar sixty six a month, and I can't imagine that it would be anything but beneficial to the patrons of our libraries to have access to that somehow. Whether it's remotely, where you download the app and then you put in your library information and it authenticates the same way Hoopla and Libby, OverDrive, all that stuff does, to then have access to that, those are the materials. Is it going to be Bezos? Is it going to be you know who's it going to be? that's going to put that out there and make that profitable for the movie companies. That's the big thing. And then that's where the lawyers could start creeping back in and just don't want to go there. So Mike, tell us more about uh, my Libro and the services your company provides. Yeah, happily. Um, So we, like I said, we, we're, we consider ourselves an all in one mobile application. We're really working to bring that virtual branch environment and we do it uh, in a SaaS model software as a service model. So we've really become the the mobile app for a lot of libraries that thought they never would have one from a pricing perspective. Uh, We're able to serve libraries of all different sizes from King County Library System out in Washington down to some libraries in Texas that have a couple hundred patrons. And really the the overall goal is just to be able to uh, take a bunch and aggregate a lot of different library resources into one place, making it convenience for patrons, uh, offering them a lot of different services in one spot. So we're a mobile application, but that virtual branch really resonates with me and seems to be something that a lot of our libraries are aiming towards. It really seems like a cool service, and I think everybody should go and check it out. So, yeah, we want to thank you for taking time out of your day to speak to us about attracting that missing middle and your insights on the future of libraries. So when we come back, we're going to ask Mike our top 10 library questions, or what we call the 032 list, which is the Dewey number for top 10 lists. And as we always do, we're giving thanks to Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for naming the list of questions we ask all our guests. So we'll be back in just a moment. we're back with Mike Rossetti. Okay, so Mike, you don't work in a library, but we modified the question slightly so we can have some fun and still kind of <laughs> keep the shtick of our, our top 10 list. So you ready to go? I appreciate you modifying the questions. <laughs> <laughs> Try to make it a little easier. Okay, so the first question, what did you want to be when you were a child? Probably the first thing I remember is I wanted to be a professional hockey player until I realized a lot of them were missing a lot of teeth and said, well, maybe that's not the way I want to go. You're going to say you want to be a boxer, right? That's a- yeah. <laughs> uh, so what's your first memory of a library and who brought you to the library for the first time? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. I'd say first memory, I'm pretty sure I was with my mom and dad, but we just went in and they were kind of introducing me to the library and to the different books that were out there. And you know, it was pretty amazing because – Growing up, I don't remember a lot of bookstores in our area. I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, and uh, I'm sure there were quite a few of them. But uh, uh, walking to that library and just seeing everything that was available was a really cool memory. I think the fact that you could just sit there and quietly read. And like I said, I like books from some of my earliest days. So that was a pretty cool memory. Okay, so when did you decide to work in the digital realm 
with libraries. We modified that one a little bit. I, I kind of fell into that. Um, it was it was not really expected. I think uh, working through newspapers and moving around quite a bit as, as newspapers were purchased and downsized and changed roles. Uh, I finally decided after a couple layoffs that it was time to get into something new. Uh, technology obviously wasn't going away and was going to continue to grow. Uh, so the library thing kind of happened by accident when I found a job with Newsbank. Uh, it actually brought me back to libraries because I'll admit I hadn't been in one for quite a while. So uh, learning what they did and kind of getting reacclimated to libraries, I give a lot of credit to, to the work I did there. That's great. So who's your favorite fictional librarian? This one was just on a few days ago, and that's what made me think of it. But I loved uh, Mr. Bookman from Seinfeld. Yeah, we've had that. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> and I actually had to go back and watch it a little bit just to remind myself, but he, he's awesome. <laughs> so what would you be doing if you weren't working in this field? Right, playing professional ice hockey, probably. Like I said, uh, I love to grill. Uh, my wife and I've talked to my wife over and over again. I think my dream job would be to open a, a comprehensive grilling store that sold everything from all different types of grills to barbecue rubs to sauces, you name it, and gave people lessons and help them find a grill that was right for them. That would probably be my pick. Wow, so it's more than just Weber, huh? Yeah, there's lots out there. <laughs> and, mo and most people probably buy their own grill, honestly. So, uh, so what's, your what's your favorite section of the library? I'm a huge adult fiction fan. Uh, I love I love mysteries. I love uh, crime thrillers. Uh, so probably I'd say adult fiction is number one for me. So if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to your local library? I love I love the maker spaces. I think that's been a really cool innovation that libraries have brought. Uh, our local library does not have one. Um, so it's something where I think obviously, you know, in this day and age, helping kids realize that maybe college isn't for everybody. And if we can get people into those different you know programs that help them train for a career, if that's their path, then uh, that that's something that all libraries could could uh, do a really good job of, I think. So what do you absolutely love about libraries? I like that they're community centers. I think, like I said, coming from a newspaper background, uh, we be we believed we're a pillar of the community. I think libraries are another pillar of the community. Uh, we had a customer not too long ago that used the word bastion of sanity in, a, in an insane world. <laughs> and I think that definitely applies. It's just a quiet place where you can go and people won't ask you for money necessarily. Um, you know, and, and you can kind of get lost there, which in this day and age is not a bad thing. So this question is modified because librarians see a whole bunch <laughs> of crazy stuff in libraries. So what's the weirdest thing that's ever happened in your career? Doesn't have to be the worst. It could just be weirdest. That's a tough one. Um, Probably, <laughs> this is kind of just a funny story, but I took a job in Mobile, Alabama, and I was somebody that was never from the Deep South, certainly didn't have the accent, probably didn't fit in terribly well there uh, the whole time I was there, but walked in and uh, my staff, my new staff had made breakfast for me. And they put out uh, grits, which I had never eaten grits at that point, and it was a mashed potatoes kid from the Midwest. My so. Um, they took so much pride in those grips and I had to choke them down just to, just to, just to get through them. So I think that, uh, I don't know if that's the weirdest thing that's happened, but it's the thing that comes to mind right now. Oh, like my cousin Vinny action, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Instant grits versus, <laughs> yeah. That's great. 
So, Mike, did you have a favorite regular customer or library that you worked with? As a, as a sales director, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be a career suicide. We love all of our customers. Uh, and, you do. <laughs> honestly, I, I say that very seriously just because our customers have what helped us develop our app. Our app's completely developed by librarians and patrons, and we're just the technology company behind it. That's awesome. So the final question, what are people without library cards missing out on? Probably that that bastion of sanity, but I think it's you know for us, for us it's more about helping them see all those great services. Like I said, I think when I went back to libraries, you know, five six years ago after I worked for Newsbank, I saw I'm like, wow, I can go in here and I, I don't have to pay for for a service to learn Spanish. I can go in here and do it through through the library, and I can check out all these books I was paying Amazon for previously and, you know, eBooks, audiobooks, everything else like that, as well as just take classes and learn about my community. And I think if people don't know that, they, they really aren't realizing all the good things that libraries do for their communities. And um, to me, that that's probably the biggest thing that we have to help expose and, and get out there to people. So Mike, do you have any plugs for us? Tell us about mylibro.com and, and anything else you want to promote. Yeah, uh, just we'd, we'd love to hear from libraries. We are working on a couple new uh, projects in terms of, you know, future development. And we're always happy just to have conversations, even even if somebody's not a buyer. We just love to hear experiences and, you know, what libraries are seeing, what they might like to see in technology in the coming years, uh, because that gives us a chance to pivot. There's that word again. And, uh, you know, and continue to look for ways to help and serve. That That's a big thing for us. So this, definitely visit our website. Uh, feel free to, to, to my, all my contact information's on there and uh, we would love to talk to you awesome thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your thoughts with us today we really appreciate you taking the time thanks Mom. it's been a pleasure thank you guys i've enjoyed it we have come to the end of another episode of the library pros and we thank you for listening if you have any questions or comments on this or any episode click on the contact us form on our website thelibrarypros.com Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by The Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.